0: Three, two, one. Flight cleared for takeoff.
1: Okay, welcome to Kentucky Caliber. I'm your host, Jason Belcher. With us this week is our guest, T.J. Lidovic from Solon Strategies, and I'll let him introduce himself.
0: But good morning, Jason, and it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, we we talk uh, personally and casually uh, uh, online and and have for some time, and have done uh, some forums together in the past. And uh, uh, I'm I'm honored to to talk to you about a. A a very pertinent
1: topic today. Yeah, and I should have mentioned that from the outset. Um, The topic we're going to be dealing with for this show is the dangers of political extremism. And you you mentioned forums in the past. I just, I think that was it was 2016 there in Lexington when we did one, wasn't it?
0: Yes, at uh, Bluegrass uh, Community and Technical College.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that rings a bell. So yeah, I I definitely. It's hard to believe that was six years ago, but.
0: Sure
1: is. That's that's wild, um, but yeah. So the, the topic today, you know, uh, the dangers of political extremism. I guess, I guess the place to start is, what do you think that means? Like, let's define that. Like, what is political extremism? What do you think a good definition is for that?
0: I I would define it rather loosely as uh, uh, actors in the political process uh, who choose to develop their own set of facts instead of engaging in, in reality.
1: Interesting. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that, that, that certainly works. Um, when I think of political extremism, one thing I, I think of is you know, folks that, that aren't, and, and it, it mirrors what you've said already, um, it, it's folks who aren't willing to, to operate within the already established framework, either legal, moral, or ethical um, that people use to either win elections or, or make public policy or pass laws, um, they, they don't. They either don't want to operate within that system, or they want that system to only respond to their demands and nobody else's.
0: Yes, yes, it's it's uh, an ever increasing uh, concept uh, that that you know it, it's my way or the highway, and that, that there is no room for compromise or understanding of where the other side is coming from. And that is not in the democratic tradition, and it's not been in the American tradition, certainly.
1: That That's correct. And, you know, you, you mentioned um, democratic tradition. Uh, the world's largest democracy by number of voters is India. And there's a really good book out there called Azadi, which translates into freedom. And the author, who I believe, if I don't if I don't mispronounce their name, is Alejandra Roy, And in that book, they talk about the rise of Hindu nationalism in India and how the ruling BJP party, which is a Hindu nationalist party, has used their power to persecute and attack minorities and to ignore India's rather lengthy uh, written constitution. I think they have the record, by the way, for the longest uh, constitution out there. But this group has decided to disregard that and the author made an interesting point, which goes right back to what you said at the outset about not about basing things not on facts but on fantasy. And I wanted to quote just a real brief section from that book. And, and the author writes, um, fake news is the scaffolding upon which fascism is erected, but fake history is the foundation upon which that scaffolding rests. And I just I feel like that's that's pretty relevant to the discussion when you talk about uh, folks that aren't dealing with reality—that—that's sort of where it all starts. Uh, when we when we treat things that are not factually true as if they were, then that that creates the whole uh, potential for political extremism. Does that make sense to you?
0: Oh, absolutely. And and to to uh, go further uh, with that concept, you know, quote unquote fake news uh, versus fake history. I think that. That is definitely a good way to describe both sides of the coin. Uh, that that it 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 it's both in the sense that the that the you know erroneous facts or or completely fabricated uh, information is in the here and now, but then it's also a failure uh, of a lot of these extremist groups to either. Uh, understand or make any study of history of democracy of uh, geopolitical affairs, etc.
1: Yeah, and and the author talked about that, and they they mentioned that you know the the version of history that's being sold by the BJP to the masses has been discredited for a long time by scholars but the audience that's receiving and embracing that message is beyond the reach of scholars so it's like these aren't they're not taking graduate level you know history or international relations classes so they're not hearing the counter arguments that prove what what the bjp is saying is incorrect they're simply receiving it from news sources or talking heads or folks online that just want to say whatever they want that has no no grounding in reality. But nonetheless, it, it's popular because it tells a certain group of people what they want to hear. And it gives them a justification to attack, in, the, in the India's case, physically, a designated enemy, uh, which is which is ongoing. So there's a lot of sectarian violence that's been flaring up. And I'm just using that as one example. There are others but the it's a very clear cut example in India where you've got the the leading Hindu nationalist groups are, are attacking uh, in in large part Muslim minorities simply because they want the same citizenship rights that India's constitution guarantees them. Well,
0: that that's uh, you know in, India is such a, a diverse and fascinating country, and you know it, certainly its its colonial uh, history is one thing, and then it's it's Post-colonial history is another, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's rather unfortunate that, uh, you know, here we are, I guess, around 70-ish years after Gandhi, and that, uh, that the situation is, uh,
1: is so dire over there. Yeah, and he's one of the figures that, is, that has become under fire and under attack from folks who want to tell a different version of history, and so we, we've seen some echoes of that here in the United States. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it lays the foundation for political extremism because once you say goodbye completely and, and thoroughly to reality, then you, you go almost entirely on emotion uh, or feeling. And, you know, you can hate someone or a group of people for reasons that may not be real, but your feelings are. And so that shared hatred becomes a, a, a growing cancer in a society, and it almost inevitably, if it's unchecked, leads to violence. Yes, and the the kind of of political violence uh,
0: that that we've seen, you know, uh, at times in the last several years in in the United States is 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 very unsettling uh, at any time, uh, but especially at a moment when our politics are more polarized than they've ever been.
1: No, that that's true, and so I guess you know the question is given that state of affairs what can we do about it i mean we we've seen a lot of different instances of, of violent activity and and we should probably talk about that for a minute i mean are is all political violence the same i mean isn't it possible that some instances of political violence can be justified? Because, I mean, after all, if you go back to our own revolution, I think our, our founding fathers would have, would have argued, well, at some point it, it becomes justified because that we use that same justification to go to war with Britain. Uh, but you have to be careful with that. You have to be very careful with that, and you have to be darn sure that you're right. Uh, because if you, if you decide to choose the, uh, the violent path and you're not right, um, boy, the, the repercussions of that are just uh, severe and long-lasting.
0: Well, and and yes, I I, I think the, the you know the, the basic answer to the question that you posit is is yes, but uh, there has to be a a, a righteousness in the cause, uh, as well as a as a groundedness and a, a justification and and a basis in uh, truth and facts to to justify uh, political revolution and and. Of course, it is justified uh, at times uh, when there is a total breakdown uh, of of leadership, of democracy, of fundamental fairness, and uh, that was obviously the case with the American Revolution, as it was the French Revolution, and other instances where uh, revolutionary behavior was was uh, undergirded by a righteous cause. Uh, but what we are seeing now uh, the, the same type of factors uh just just aren't there
1: yeah and you know here in the u s it, it seems like um almost any issue becomes very inst- instantly politicized. And what happens when that when it occurs is that you get it's a it's a labeling process, like something's instantly labeled, okay, that's left wing or okay, that's right wing. And from that point on, in a certain segment of the population, that is simply accepted as fact, and the discussion becomes about what to do about that faction. Like we need to stop the leftists or we need to stop the righties. Um, and you know, I, I would say this is kind of what James Madison warned about in Federalist number ten. When he warned us of the dangers of factions, which he defined as a a group of citizens, activated by some common impulse of passion, averse to the rights of other citizens, and I see, I mean, you can tell me if you disagree with this. But what I see happening is there there's groups that are both left leaning and right leaning who have something that they really really want. They have a certain uh, political agenda that they absolutely want to to get to get uh, achieved or accomplished, and and no matter what. That's the most important thing to them, and whenever it doesn't happen, you start hearing, you know, you start hearing some criticism that okay, there's there's uh, corruption or there's a problem that that's preventing this agenda from happening, and maybe that's legit, but it seems like that the voices that talk the loudest um, are inciting um, parts of the population to take up uh, violent activities to, in order to fulfill their goals because they don't think they can do it any other way.
0: Well, and and. One of the most destructive uh, destructive elements at, at play in in our modern politics is the almost complete lack of any time to to ponder to, to, to digest to to consider uh, before one emerges with a, a statement that can have a, a very profound effect of you know the, the the, the Instagram and, and, and Twitter world that we live in today uh, has absolutely no filter and and there's no uh, there's no time to digest and process a lot of the time before uh, whatever emerges and and that can be very
1: very destructive yeah, I, I think, it, and that's, it's been exacerbated, although not created by modern technology, but you're absolutely right. It, it does it make the problem worse. I think Mark Twain said, you know, the, the a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can put its boots on. Um, and, and that was at a time yeah. where we had printed newspapers. So today with the electronic world, it moves even faster. Um, and you, you see that happening. You know, I, this came up when I was on the, the Jack Patty show, I think last week. We were talking about this. When we were, we were about the same age. When we were growing up, it was it was all most of the things that that came through the public via the news was done via television, and there were three major networks generally that that you know the the three bigs the NBC, or NBC, ABC, and CBS. It, but they had a process before they went on the evening news and, and said something to fifty million people or eighty million people. They had a process to check and see if it made sense, if it was credible, if we could support it. I mean, it may not have been a perfect process, but there was one. Um, they didn't just take the camera and say, "Hey, let's go find your crazy uncle and let them say anything they want on the evening news." That'll be fine. Uh, but but that's what the internet has done. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're dealing with.
0: Sure. Yes, and and, and you know, and, and I don't remember you know growing up and, and thinking of uh, uh, you know. Uh, Sander Van Oker or Walter Cronkite, or Dan—well, maybe not Dan Rather, but uh, uh, Peter Jennings or Tom Brokaw—I never thought of any of those individuals as leaning right or leaning left. Uh, you know, they were just journalists uh, who, more often than not, did a darn good job uh, of conveying news to the public. And uh, and and my goodness, you know. Uh, nowadays, uh, you know, we're, we're judged by, by what by what uh, cable networks we watch.
1: Yeah, or, or which party you belong to. Sure, I mean, so there's there's folks out there, on, on, and it doesn't matter which side of the, the spectrum you occupy. As soon as you say something, oh, yeah, that's just a leftist propaganda. That's a liberal. Oh, yeah, that's just right wing propaganda. That's a that's a, a MAGA guy, uh, and so that that also contributes to just a you know a complete breakdown in, in communication.
0: Yes, yes, and and the concept of, you know, it it really is such an unfortunate thing for our American democracy that, you know, we're all pegged red state, blue state, and that really, you know, presidential candidates have very little incentive to campaign uh, in all but a handful of swing states, and, uh, you know, know, it's... Take for example the nineteen seventy six um, presidential election. We will never see a map like that. Uh, certainly in our lifetime, and, and you know maybe never again in American history. You, with, with a few variations, you could almost draw a line down the center of the country, and and everything. You know most most states west of the Mississippi. Went for Gerald Ford, and most states east of the Mississippi went for Carter. It's was very close race, and, and Carter won. But you will never see states that went for Ford go Republican again, or states that went for Carter go Democratic again. In large part, and uh, and that's that's
1: very. Uh, unhealthy for our, our democracy, and you know, but, but think, thats probably true. I, I I wouldn't disagree with that. I just I just say, but things do change. Um, you know, I remember when I graduated high school back in you know ninety two, uh, Bill Clinton won Kentucky handily uh, twice. So, you know, that was a, a different time. Now, you, you couldn't, he probably wouldn't stand a, a chance uh, if he were on the ballot today. So that's a, a big swing. And I, I think eventually, you know, I, I don't think it's impossible that another change could take place. But like you, I have a hard time seeing what it would be, how it would happen, or when it would take place.
0: Yes. And, you know, as, and as to your broader question of, of what can we do to, to, uh, to bring about a positive change. You know, there, there are so many things that, that we should do or could do, um, but in, in general, we, we just need uh, courageous men and women in in both political parties that approach politics from a place of, number one, seriousness, number two, congeniality, and number three, a willingness to listen to the other side and to try to understand their position, even if you have great disagreement, and uh, it, it just the, the the era of the of the dug-in Democrat or the dug-in Republican is just uh, is just terrible for any functional uh, democracy, and it's especially. Congress and in our state legislatures.
1: And it, and it does two things. I mean, as we've seen it, it, at the national level, it tends to bring things to a halt, right? You kind of, we, we, they're used to, the running joke used to be gridlock, right? Well, that's how you get gridlock. You know, you, nobody wants to budge. It's sort of like the, the political version of trench warfare, where you expend a whole lot of energy for a long time, but nobody really gained or lost any ground. You're right back to where you started from. Um, and the other thing it does is it promotes extremism, which is our, our topic, of course, here this week by... Inconcing, ensconcing each you know parties within their own uh, separate universe of agendas which never get really challenged uh, because the primary system rewards uh, extreme candidates and and so they they come there with ever more divergent and ever more extreme agendas which which has even less chance of uh, bipartisan support um, and that just sort of perpetuates itself as a cycle is that kind of what you see happening
0: oh yes um, you know it, it, it's it's very interesting for me as a, as a political professional to observe what's going on uh, i mean, in Kentucky-based, uh, but, uh, but not just in Kentucky, but uh, in, in my party, Republican Party's primary elections, both in our state and in other states. And, you know, candidates that 10 years ago, or maybe even five years ago, would have been considered, you know, completely unacceptable or, or political gadflies uh, are suddenly, you know, very viable. And um, it's just, uh, you know, it, it when when you send someone who has no uh, desire whatsoever to be flexible on anything uh, to be. Uh, uh, congenial with their fellow legislators, you are not going to have a very effective representative uh, in a legislative body. And uh, we're sending more and more of those type individuals who are, you know, uh, political Howard Stearns, you know, just just in it for the shock value.
1: Or Alex Jones.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. And, 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 you know, that type of individual might be colorful, might be entertaining, but they're not going to accomplish much.
1: And, and why, so why do, you vote, why do they keep winning? I guess that would be my, if you're a political professional, why do they keep winning? Well, it's easy to
0: <laughs> throw about, you know, ideological purity tests. And that's not just in, in my party, it's in your party too.
1: Yeah, for folks who don't know, uh, T.J.'s a Republican, I'm a Democrat. So, yeah, I just I forgot to mention that at the outset. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Yes, uh, but, but,
0: you know, it's just, uh, you know, it, we, we have a lot of, of, you know, heavily red and heavily blue districts where, you know, the most far-right Republican uh, emerges out of a primary and, and then has no, you know, meaningful general election and then in, in heavily blue districts where the most extreme Democrat emerges and then has no meaningful general. And, um, you know, the, the, the country, quite frankly, uh, needs a lot less Marjorie Taylor Greens and uh, AOC's if, if we're going to get past this uh,
1: point that we're at now. No, I, I would agree, um, and it's unfortunate that you see that. Some of it... Um, has to do with what I call the the monetization and the weaponization of disinformation. Um, you know, the internet is, is in some ways it's like a beehive. Um, if you bump into it, it's going to start buzzing. It just does, uh, and so it doesn't matter if that bump was accidental or intentional. Uh, it's going to create noise, and so there's folks out there who are quite skilled at creating a big buzz, even though they, they're doing it on purpose and what they're saying isn't true. It seems that structurally, the internet can't distinguish that. It has to buzz. It, you can't help it. And that helps them. Yes. It,
0: yes. It, it, it sure does. And, and you know, and, um, it, it, it's just, it's, uh, you know, within Kentucky Republican politics at this moment, um, you know, there are so many people at the, at the grassroots level uh, who have expressed, you know, vast animus uh, towards many uh, established uh, Republican leaders and that, you know, seemingly have as as, as much hatred for them as they do Democrats. And, yeah,
1: uh, yeah, I've noticed and I, that too. That, yeah. And so
0: it's just, uh, you know, I, I don't know the, you know, the, I, I guess there's no easy answer other than that, you know, uh, some of these individuals will will just have to have to prove uh, their own, uh, you know, their own value or, or whether or not they're competent to uh, to hold these offices. No. Uh, but you know, it's uh, it, it's far different from from the kind of individuals that, that Kentucky used to have in previous generations. Uh, men like John Sherman Cooper and, and Carl Perkins.
1: Who, by the way, Cooper was actually, later on in his career, ambassador to India, which we started our discussion on that. That's kind of interesting. Yes,
0: yes, and to uh, to West Germany.
1: That's right. Um, I was going to say I had a point there, and it, I lost it. first. Oh, um, I wanted to give a shout-out and, and a good job done to, to Secretary of State Kentucky Mike Adams, who I think has done a good job in standing up against Folks here in Kentucky who have demanded uh, baseless and needless recounts, or, or have claimed that they won't accept the outcome of elections. Um, so I I think he's done a good job uh, of standing up to folks who have tried to make that claim, and it's it's surprising to me, uh, or maybe not, uh, that we've seen that type of behavior uh, spreading uh, across the country after 2020.
0: Yes, I, I you know I as somebody that's been in and around. State politics uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I, I have, have worked with the uh, Secretary of State's office in, in, in several administrations. And, and I have to say, I, I think that, that our Secretary of State uh, here in Kentucky, uh, no matter who's been in office, at least in the time that I've been going over to Frankfurt, that, that they've all had, a, had a, a, a solid staff and done a good job. And I think Michael Adams is continuing that tradition. Um, you know, he, he's had to deal with just so much just, just farcical uh, allegations from, you know, I, I was talking to a, a member of the legislature this morning, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, about, you know, the, the these instances where some of these candidates who were defeated by, you know, you know High double-digit margins uh, in these Republican primaries posted, you know, very uh, considerable bonds to have recounts that were obviously not going to change. And uh, you know, I I, I really I, I feel very strongly that uh, that you know the the complete fabrication about about uh, voting and and the integrity of our elections.
1: And I wanted to make sure we made this point somewhere. You're absolutely right. Um, Would you, when you step out and say that you refuse to accept the outcome of an election that you lost, that's political extremism. That's exactly what it is. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, it's a threat to our entire election election system and and the foundations of democracy. Later on this evening, I'm going to be meeting with the uh, president of uh, We the Veterans. Uh, and, and talking to him on behalf of VFRL, which is Veterans for Responsible Leadership. And just to, to briefly put a plug in for them real quick, one of our cornerstones is to defend the integrity of American elections and the electoral process and faith in institutions. And so when you have folks who say they refuse to accept the outcome, um, they are attacking that system. Do you Would you agree with that? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and not only is if, you know uh, you know at least the way I was was raised you know you you be a good sportsman and and part of being a good sportsman is being gracious in defeat and admitting that that you know accepting your defeat and and calling your opponent and congratulating them and, and making a concession call like any <clears throat> responsible man and or man or woman would do
1: yeah, it used to be that way. I mean, and, and these numbers, I mean, we're talking about numbers. So, I mean, you, you can't numbers, I mean, it's it's a quantity. It's a fixed quantity. So our election system works incredibly well, um, and, and that's to the credit of the people who who run it and maintain it from the county level to the state level uh, and on up. Um, you know, recount after recount, it's been pretty consistently shown that the, the, the totals don't change. They rarely change. I mean, and if it does, it's, it's, a, it's a tiny, insignificant fraction that alters. So the original number that we get for an election is correct. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, our system learns. When we have things that happen in past elections, if we see someplace where a fraud was attempted, legislators change the laws to prohibit that from occurring again. So it's a learning system, and that's why it works so well. And I just, I don't really know what to make of folks who, 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 who actually think that they're going to get reinstated to an office that they lost. I mean, I, I just I don't know what to make of that.
0: Yes, and, and you know, I, I was, was talking with someone the other day, and I said, you know, if, if we had fundamental fraud or, uh, or dishonest elections in the United States, then Donald Trump would have never been the 45th president of the United States to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, because uh, you know the, the the so-called establishment and you know uh, various actors, uh, uh, you know, were, were not for Donald Trump in 2016, but he still took office uh, in January of 2017, and uh, could have, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, could have remained there uh, had he altered his strategy, uh, but he did not. He ran the same. Campaign more or less uh, in 2020 that he did in 2016, and he failed to realize that Joe Biden was a different opponent than, than Hillary, and that's why he lost. It wasn't because it was fraudulent or stolen; it was bad strategy, and he did not uh, he did not focus his campaign or or alter his pitch to get the voters that he needed to get, namely suburban women. And it really is as simple as that. And the idea that there was wholesale fraud or any of that stuff is is a total fabrication. And I uh, really admire people like the very courageous Secretary of State in Georgia uh, who put his political career on the line and was overwhelmingly reelected. And I think that is, that the, the, the Georgia Secretary of State gives me hope that doing the right thing uh, will usually pay off in the end.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, all, it's, yeah, I mean, this is you know calling election officials and 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 asking them to change the results so so you can win. I mean, that's that's third world tin pot dictatorship stuff, isn't it? Yes, that that was. Uh, I,
0: I think that was definitely Trump uh, at his worst, and. Uh, and you know, it, you know, and, and I know we'll disagree on this, but I think there are, are so many people like me who say, "Wow, Donald Trump accomplished some wonderful things in his administration, but he was his own worst enemy in so many ways. When if he had just behaved differently, he could have he could have been reelected." Uh, but uh, but yes, that uh, that the Georgia uh, situation was uh, was one that uh, that was completely uncalled
1: for. But and I'm glad you brought that up because I mean it, it shows you that we have in the United States, you know, robust institutions that are in place to prevent the very type of political extremism from taking over the system that has happened in other countries. So, for example, Russia does not have the same level of robust institutions that we have, and consequently, Vladimir Putin now is is pretty much a dictator. Sure, they have a a Duma that passes laws, but they only do it with his say so. Sure, they have judges, but they only rule with his approval, with his permission. Um, And so, when you get to the point where it's one person calling the shots, that's not a democracy anymore. That's a dictatorship, and that's what Russia has become in all but name. Um, And you see where that leads them um, into a a pointless, you know, war in Ukraine. But the, the the larger point here is that that political extremism, if it gets enough popular support, can become very dangerous enough to, to take control of the apparatus of a, of a country. And from that point on, it's a different country. You know, now you're, you're living under a, a dictatorship.
0: Yes. And, uh, it's, uh, uh incidentally, I've started reading uh, a new book that, that came out recently that, that's called Hitler's girl. And, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's about, uh, uh a woman named Unity Mitford, who was a, a British socialite, a very wealthy and well-connected family, who uh, just became obsessed with, with Nazism and with Hitler and uh, moved to, to Munich in the 30s and somehow managed to become uh, ingratiated in Hitler's uh, inner circle. And, uh, but the, the, the broader theme of, of this book was the danger of when complacency can turn into complicity if good people don't follow their own moral compasses and, and step up at certain times. And, and that's kind of what happened in Europe. There were many alarm bells that were ignored uh
1: And that's, one of the, and that's one of the reasons why I brought up the Russia example. You know, the, the Putin philosophy is there is no such thing as truth. Truth doesn't exist. Uh, there's only relative opinions. Uh, and that's become a very popular talking point, uh, I- at least from the Kremlin standpoint. They love that, that idea that there is no truth. And so you can imagine that if people decide to accept that as, as valid, then the ground rules on which democracy operates really are no longer functional. I mean, at that point, you're, you're dead. Uh, you, you can't have a democratic system of government uh, or society without truth it just you can't have it um, there has to be facts there has to be factual evidence and there has to be a an electorate of, of citizens that are educated enough to know the difference yes
0: yes it, it uh, and you know in, 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 you know denying denying facts and uh, and of course, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts, but uh, you know, accepting facts as facts, and you know, wanting what most of us want, regardless of our political leanings, uh, for a better community and state and nation, you know, that, that that's really not left or right, and most people, regardless of the loud voices, of the the, the amplified chatter that, that sucks up so much of the oxygen, uh, I think that that despite it all, most Americans still want more or less the same things when you boil out all of the baloney. And and maybe one day we can we can again uh, get to a place uh, where we're, we're not in alignment on everything, uh, but we do realize that, that we are all Americans and that, that we're all living in the greatest country in the
1: world. And, and I, I agree with that. I just wanted to mention you, you said something that triggered a, a memory, I think, um, or a, a, a source I came across a couple of days ago. Have you heard of the book 2,000 Mules or the uh, documentary? I think it's been... Recalled by the publisher? Is that true? I, I don't know if that's if that's actually true or not. But I, I didn't know if you'd heard that or not.
0: I I don't. I, I have I have seen some some Twitter uh, chatter on that. I, I haven't really uh, uh, explored that particular uh, publication, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not completely sure about what the narrative it, is there,
1: but essentially that uh, there was—it's it, essentially it purports to provide proof that there was widespread, you know, fraud in the 2020 election. Uh, it's also a documentary. I, I watched. There was a clip I found for free because I because I'm not paying for that. Uh, but I, I found a clip that I, I managed to watch for free, and, and my assessment is it, it's a complete fiction. It's a pure fiction, but it's making a lot of money and it's making a lot of noise. Um, And so that's one of the things that just keeps inflaming the the type of extremism that we see when people can go to a a bookstore and say, Oh, well, there's a book on how uh, there was widespread fraud. There's a ex president who says there was widespread fraud. You can sort of see how from just an average citizen that might suggest to you that their claims are credible. I mean, would you not, I mean, can you see sort of where they're coming? I I know they're not, but you can, you can see how it gives it the, the appearance of, of actually being credible. Oh, absolutely.
0: And that, you know, that, Books like that are are uh, are not of 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 if any value whatsoever to the to the debate uh, when they're just based on on completely uh, fictional and fantastical narratives uh, you know it, it you know I I try to read a, a diverse amount of material of positions that I may or may not agree with and I was browsing the other day, you know, Barnes & Noble was just, was was somewhat amused by just the, the proliferation of, of, uh, of books from important people and and bit players in Trump world uh, that, that have emerged. It's almost like all the, the hangers-on around Elvis that have written various books and memoirs. I mean, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if if Trump's, uh, you know, housekeeper didn't pop up with a memoir here soon, I mean, every every uh, minor figure it seems like has emerged with the, with a book about you know their their interactions with Trump, uh, and and some of them, I, and quite frankly, the John Bolton.
1: Yeah, no, you bring up a good point. So in, in support of political extremism, there is an entire industry that makes its living on perpetuating the kinds of falsehoods that enable and fuel extremism within our political arena. So when they have allies. They have allies that are out there and they make a lot of money, a lot of money. They, they get very wealthy very fast uh, from Selling books like that. Um, and so they have a financial incentive to keep doing it. And uh, So it's not just the political candidates. They're, they have partners out there in the private sector uh, that get rich, uh, making the same kind of rumors and, and innuendos. I, I think of it as, you know, when we were growing up, this kind of stuff was tabloid, right? I mean, this was the Inquirer. We, nobody took it seriously. We used to laugh at stuff like this. And now it's it's selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of, or if not millions of copies. And uh, I have a hard time explaining why that is. <laughs>
0: Yes, and and some of them are are just, you know, completely uh, a waste of of pretty much anybody's time. Some of them are are legitimate and good, but there are some that are just, uh, you know, really not offering much in terms of, of substance or... Uh, illumination.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I, I I completely agree. I just, I guess, I wish we could get back to the point where we just, for when it comes to elected officials, and you know, I said this on the on the radio last week. Why can't we just have quiet, competent professionals who do their job? try to solve problems, and, and hardly ever, you know, get much attention. Like, leave the entertainment to Hollywood or to the athletes or to the celebrities. or that Those are the folks that should be entertaining us, not, not our elected officials. We shouldn't be looking for entertainment there. Um, I, I would like to see a new generation of folks take office who are just quiet, competent professionals who they aren't there to entertain. They're there to solve problems. They're there to serve the public. They're there to, maybe they'll never be, maybe they don't have a celebrity-type personality or last name, and they're not rich, and they never will be. Uh, But we need them. We need them in there to solve problems instead of entertaining us.
0: Well, I I would absolutely agree with that. And and it's okay. I mean, we, you know, especially in the South, uh, we have a long history of, One of our top presidents, you know, maybe not up there with Lincoln and Washington and FDR, but just below them. And we need more men like him uh, who approach things uh, with a seriousness and an earnestness and a desire to want to try to do the right thing.
1: And that's one of the reasons why I like doing having discussions like these and putting the podcast out there. After. I hope folks that listen will be encouraged to do, to do the same themselves, to, to educate themselves and to read. And, and the way I was taught, you know, I'm, I'm an officer training school graduate from the Air Force, and they, they were pretty clear on us that their opinion is you can't be a leader if you're not a reader. Um, and so you, you have to do that. You, you have to cultivate your mind and inform yourself of the facts. And you can't do that simply by listening to videos or, or, or the radio. I mean, you have to read. And, and at some point, that's just an essential part of not only uh, elected officials, of citizenship. And so I see that as a potential antidote to political extremism, and, and that is education. Not the formal system, but that's part of it, but people who take the time to educate themselves on topics. Um, you know, I, I used to get, when I came back from deployment in Iraq, I used to get a lot of people would say, you know, thank you for your service. And I appreciate that. I really do. We all did. Uh, I heard it so many times, though, that I started asking a question, um, and, and I never got an answer. I would I would ask folks who said this, and, and, and in all sincerity, I appreciate your thanks. I do. But can, can you name one book you've ever read on Iraq, and, and not one person that I ever asked that to could, could name one? Um, so... It would have helped our, it helps our service folks if we educate ourselves to keep them out of situations they don't need to be in because we're responsible we're watching their six. When you're doing the mission, you don't have time for that. you're, you're busy doing the mission, but back home it's our responsibility to watch out for them and to see that we don't send them into places that they don't need to be. But anyway, getting off track. the education component I think is critical, and that's the one you mentioned I think in Truman's case, uh, I think that's a good potential antidote for um, extremism in politics.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. The the uh, you know I I would would you know more often than not uh, most of the people that that come up with the most uh, fantastical uh, rhetoric and and behaviors are, are people that are are probably not uh, particularly well read uh, or or grounded in in our. In our extraordinary history and and past in, in in certainly America, but but the whole world, and uh, and and that's you know, um, it, you know, I, we should have presidents and governors and and even you know mayors and and legislators and and city council members, you know, who who do make it a point to 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 read and to ponder and to try to understand uh, more about just what is it that they're having an impact
1: on you know and I love the then I love uh, the Truman example because you don't have to go you don't have to get a master's degree or a PhD or even a bachelor's degree You're, that's why I like the Truman example you know you, you can educate yourself uh, and that's just as valid sure absolutely and
0: yeah well you know Abraham Lincoln was was really the same way of uh, you know, he, he was a guy that didn't have much formal education, but you know, would 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 walk for miles to borrow books from people and to to make a study of classic literature. And uh, and you know, if, if, if anybody, I would certainly recommend uh, to those who haven't read it, uh, Doris Kearns uh, Goodwin's great book, Team of Rivals.
1: Hmm, I don't uh, know that one. So I'll check it out. The leaders who was not
0: afraid to put people of very different viewpoints together and then, you know, hear them all out and then make a decision uh, based upon on that discussion. And uh, Team of Rivals is a wonderful
1: uh, uh, look at, at Lincoln's cabinet. That's a good one. I, like I said, I have not read that one, so I'll add that to my list. Um, I think history is... Extremely important. My undergraduate training is in history. I just took a job as a museum director here in Pikeville because uh, I wanted to have a chance to be part of the you know, preservation of history and, and engaging the public on, on the regional history here in Eastern Kentucky, which is what we're focused on at the museum. Uh, but that, of course, is, is a part of the larger American narrative and it's crucial that the, not just the next generation, but, but folks of any age, uh, it's never too late to uh, to learn new things about the past and about history and to see how it can inform our thinking on problems that we face today. And so I, I think that's, without that, I don't know how we can beat uh, political extremism uh, here in the United States. It'll keep growing, and we've, we've got to keep trying to, to fight it. Well,
0: that, that's exciting. Uh, about the Big Sandy uh, Heritage Museum and, and uh, that's uh, that's that's a great place to to do a lot of good work. I, I know you'll do well in that position.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I know we're coming up on the the 50 minute mark here, so I know we've got to wrap it up. Any any final thoughts on you know any aspects of political extremism we haven't talked about or things that we could, could do that we haven't mentioned yet?
0: I think we've covered a, covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I I would just say that. I would just say that it's important for people to remember that uh, the
1: loudest—excuse
0: <clears throat> me, my allergies are—that's okay. The uh, loudest voice uh, isn't always uh, the most correct.
1: Yes, I, I would 100% agree with that, and I, I think you know my my thought is when I when I see the type and you've referred to it a few times, uh, the folks who are making noise to make money or to get attention, I keep thinking. Uh, you know, eventually the public's going to get tired of their antics. Eventually the public's going to get tired of their attention seeking and they're not going to pay, pay them any attention. So I I don't know how long that will take, but I still have faith in the voters and faith in the people that eventually, you know, okay, the, the, the loudmouths are going to win some. That's inevitable. But I think on the long run, uh, they're going to lose and, and that uh, democracy will right itself. So I guess I'm an optimist. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and, and you know, to wrap it up, too, I would say that it takes no special talent in politics or government to be against everything. The 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 ability to say yes and figure out a way to make it work is when the system functions at its best.
1: No, that's a great point. Okay, well, listen, I've, I've had a good time. I love these discussions. We can do some more in the future uh, if you want to. And, we'll, you know, you've got to watch with uh, current events. You never know when there could be another flare-up of uh, politically motivated violence uh, here in the United States or elsewhere That's uh, that could be informative or is, is worth discussion. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed it. Let's do it again soon. Okay, it was great to hear from TJ on such a timely and important topic. And we thank everyone for listening and hope you have a great day. Take care.